Welcome, Digital Wildcatters, to another episode of BDE. We're going to hearken back to Michael Jordan early in his career. There was a night, and it really is coming out party, when he scored 62 points to beat the Boston Celtics in a playoff game. And that was really the first time people thought, okay, Jordan could win a championship and all. They asked John Paxson, the starting point guard of the Chicago Bulls that night, they said, John, what are you always going to remember about this night? And John says, I'm always going to remember it as the night me and Jordan combined for 64 points to beat the Boston <laughs> Celtics. As John Paxson today, we have a special guest host, Jeff Davies. Jeff, welcome in. Appreciate it. Big, big shoes to follow here, stepping <laughs> in for Colin. Short pants, but big shoes. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So let's jump in. Issue number one. All right, Jeff, we've got Russia surrounding Ukraine. We have news this morning that the Russians have recognized two independent states uh, within Ukraine. They've sent in peacekeeping forces. Here's what we've kind of talked about on the BDE show about Russia and Ukraine. Brad Olson came on. He lived in Russia back in college. He was a Russian studies major. His take is... Putin is the goth kid. He's the kid that wants to go make fun of the star quarterback of the football team, but ultimately wouldn't pick a fight there because he'd know he'd lose. So his take was, this is Putin saber rattling, wants to make some noise, get some attention, but at the end of the day, he will not go in. Um, my watching, of the, and so I kind of agreed with him then, not knowing any better because I'm not a geopolitical expert, but just watching it, it seems like it's gotten more serious. Uh, Putin gave a speech yesterday that really amped up the volume on Ukraine as part of Russia, et cetera. So let's jump in, Jeff. What do you think about all this stuff? You know, I won't claim to be a, a Russian expert by any stretch of the imagination. I will say that, you know, I'm of the age when, you know, when I think of Russia, I think of Red Dawn and I think of Rambo one and I think of Rocky one and we're we're mortal energy or enemies with Russia. Um, you know, I think Putin has kind of maximum leverage and he understands that he has maximum leverage with what's going on with the energy crisis in Europe. So he's taking advantage of it. You look at his age, it's probably the time to make a power play as well. Um, you know what ultimately happens I'm not so sure, to be honest with you. I, I think he continues to, you know, take advantage of the leverage that he has. But I also think that, uh, you know, oil's at a place where, you know, if he takes actions that push it up too much from here, it becomes a self-fulfilling kind of down cycle, i.e. We, we run into demand destruction and ultimately oil prices roll over. So, you know, the skew of kind of, you know, positive, negative, you know, reactions as it relates to the energy market doesn't feel great to me here. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because Brad made his point. I um, grab coffee every morning in Richmond. The police force is always in there of Richmond. Saying the force is a little too strong. <laughs> Random police officers are in there. One of the police officers is um, Russian and he actually claims that Putin's written about this, talked about it, and that 
Putin wants to go down in history as Peter the Great too. And Peter the Great actually united all of Russia kind of back in the day. And something you just said I hadn't really thought of in light of that is given Putin's age. Putin is getting older. I mean, he doesn't have. So I wonder if that's the case. Let's assume Russia is going to go in. What actually happens to oil price with that? Do we have other than just kind of saber rattling noise in oil price, or do we truly have potentially supply cut off, demand destruction? Does it actually matter if he goes into Ukraine? I think it depends on ultimately what the final action is. You know, if he just goes after these two separate, you know, separatist states, um, I don't think the world can, you know, is too concerned about that. If it's a full blown invasion. And, you know, the, the EU and the U.S. are forced to put on considerable sanctions on Russia. I think they have leverage to respond by, you know, taking energy off the market, kind of taking natural gas away from Europe, away from the EU. So there's uh, a lot of different outcomes that this, this can take at the end of the day. I do, you know, again, if I'm Putin, I do sit there and worry uh, do I kill my own leverage by killing off demand by, you know, spiking oil prices, for example? Um, so he's got to be careful what hand he plays here at the end of the day. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense to really, you know, on the heels of what the world's going through to, uh, you know, go for kind of World War Three here. Uh, you know, unless he, you know, to your point, wants to be Peter the Great, wants to uh, bring all those countries back together. Um, but it feels like they have, they're in a good position as it relates to, you know, kind of the, you know, EU gas demand where oil prices are. I sit here and kind of scratch my head, right? Why ruin a good thing if you're Russia? Yeah. I've never understood this about, let's call them third world dictators. They got a pretty good life. Why go mess it up? I mean, Putin, I think is worth $40 billion dollars. Ukraine's not that great, <laughs> I mean, but uh, anyway, no, it'll be it'll be interesting to watch. I uh, last week when Colin and I talked about it, Colin forced me to make a prediction. I said Russia would not invade and that oil prices would fall ten dollars. As I've always said about anything hedging, oil price related, do the opposite of what I say. But uh, it kind of feels like maybe we've got the opposite going on. He he really may be serious about so, this. So do you think there's $10 of premium in the price of oil right now? I was kind of stabbing at that, and I thought yes. But the thing that still comes back that I'm discombobulated about is how is the four-year strip at 60-something? You know, how are we in such backwardation? Because I can't and, – and I'll ask you this question – I'll say it as a statement, but then I'll turn it to a question. You know, you could sit there in the late 90s and go 3D seismic. Ah, here's something that's going to lead to new supply. You could sit there with the shale revolution, even when it worked on natural gas, but didn't work yet on oil. You could, in your mind, go, man, if we just figure out this horizontal drilling and multi-stage fracking for oil like we have with gas, this could work. I don't see anything like that when it comes to supply. I mean, I think future supply, and I'm talking call it five to seven years, is literally hard work, spend capital dollars by OPEC. And that's that's the reality. So I don't see 
how we're at sixty five dollars in four years. I, I would agree with you. You know, there's nothing on the supply side of the equation that I see. You know, clearly the market perhaps is pricing in, you know, a, a steeper drop off in demand than myself or really anybody should expect from, you know, the green renewable push that which is a decades, multi-decades long process, not years. Um, so I, I don't quite understand it. I, I, I think the world is still trying to figure out, OK, basically the world came to a stop supply chain disruption, labor problems, et cetera, et cetera, because this isn't just an oil issue. It's kind of every commodity in the world has spiked. Right. So I, I still think there's the mentality out there that, hey, once we get through the next 12 or 18 months, everything's going to kind of resolve itself. Supply chains will be fixed and we'll be back to a normal price. But specific to oil, uh, you know, maybe people are forgetting we were on the heels of the collapse of U.S. shale and that, you know, short cycle marginal supply just isn't there again. We've got a great quote I'll throw up from GW, like the vo <laughs> velociraptors in Jurassic Park one. Putin is testing us for weakness. I like that. Good one, GW. So issue two. All right, Jeff, last week the FERC met and they changed the rules for approving a pipeline. The rules had actually been in place for 23 years. They broadened what could be considered for approval. They added landowners, they added environmental concerns. And then in a separate but related ruling, they actually put climate change considerations into the approval process. It was a split vote, three to two. The three Democrats voted no, or the three Democrats voted yes. The two Republicans voted no. Proponents of the um, change said this is more inclusive of what needs to be done with energy policy to include other considerations. Opponents said we're never going to build another freaking pipeline in the United States in our lifetime. What thoughts do you have there? Well, I think, you know, part of that, you, you hit the nail on the head, but part of that also was uh, just from kind of a high level reading of it was the pipeline has to not only take into consideration the environmental impact of the pipeline, but also the environmental impact of the upstream activity that it ties into as well. So it kind of gets tied to the E&P activity and it, and it clearly is not good for the industry. It's clearly not good for additional pipelines being built in the U.S., uh, you know, additional environmental reviews typically give, uh, you know, third parties, environmental groups, et cetera, et cetera, uh, other avenues to challenge pipelines. So from the, you know, perspective of permitting and building pipelines in this country, it's, it's certainly not a positive. And you maybe, you know, kind of connect that back quickly to the last discussion, you know, when you look at the leverage that a Russia has over the EU based on kind of natural gas supplies, why would we here in the US be taking any actions that would preclude or delay additional pipelines to the Gulf Coast to export more, you know, natural gas to Europe, you know, so a lot of this doesn't really make sense from a poly policy perspective. It feels like we're, 
you know, taking kind of money out of one pocket and putting it in the other, you know, trying to sanction, you know, Russia, which will hurt the EU. We could help the EU, but we're not allowing ourselves to do it. So I'm actually going to make a point here that might get me in a little bit of trouble, but I could actually live with this change in the approval process because I do think it's fair. Landowners, environmental concerns. The only tweak I would make to it is it needs to be the standard doesn't need to be absolute. It needs to be relative to existing because in my mind, if you're the Northeast and you're spending or 15 to 20 percent of your winter heating is coming from burning fuel oil, that's bad for the environment. Give me a break. There's no way to say that's good when you're actually importing LNG from foreign countries that's bad and that's what we're doing right now because we've got all of this marcellus and utica gas that we can't just run a pipeline into the northeast with so i'd actually be okay if there were some sort of framework of let's incrementally make it better and so that's that's my suspicion that maybe this just isn't environmentalism there's something bigger going on because of that I mean, I, I've talked uh, a decent amount of, about this on Twitter where, you know, I, I think it's less who's president, less who's controlling the Department of Energy and thus FERC and, and those kind of high level uh, government agencies. You know, at the end of the day, it's a complex web of laws here in this country, both on the grassroots level, you know, local, federal, state that really prevent pipelines from being built. Certainly. The president can help some of that happen, you know, but I think it was, I think Toby Rice at EQT just put out a, you know, good letter basically to the DOE saying, uh, you know, hey, let us build pipelines to the Northeast so that they're not buying LNG at 30 and MCF, you know, from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, they gave like six pipelines that had been built or excuse me, uh, delayed or canceled over the last number of years, half of those pipelines were canceled under Trump, half have been canceled since Biden, right? So who's president doesn't necessarily stop pipelines being built in this country. It's the Clean Water Act. It's NEPA. It's, you know, all these laws that are actually statutory on the books, have been on the books for 50, 70 years in many cases. And in many instances, those actually statutorily give third party the ability to intervene in court to stop pipelines. And that's ultimately what kind of is the biggest problem, you know, to get things built. What the president can do in the short term to get things approved, I think there's not a lot because at the end of the day, a court has to go back to the law. Um, uh, you know, so it's, it's and, and again, just because I know this, NEPA was, you know, approved or voted into law 372 to 15, right? It had massive bipartisan support 50 or 70 years ago whenever it was put into place. And, you know, there's a number of pipelines that have been canceled or delayed just because of NEPA review or, or Clean Water Act review. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. And as an old political science major, I mean, the founding fathers designed this system so we couldn't do things very quickly. I mean, it was protect property and then number two, make sure the government is slow and prodding because 
an authoritarian government, a quick moving government actually can take away property rights. And so you're right in that it's a mess of federal approvals, state approvals and the like. And, and so I have a tendency to prefer things not changing, even if I could get rules that are better for me just because I, I, I think that probably works out if it's more of a process-related thing. What it does make interesting is when you look at the energy landscape, how much do Texas, Louisiana benefit in that we don't have to get FERC approval to, to say within the state, you know? Right. You know, and, and, you know, question I have, and I don't have the answer, to be honest with you, there's, I believe, double-digit, you know, 10-plus LNG export facilities FERC approved in the Gulf Coast, effectively just waiting on commercial arrangements to move forward. I think a couple of them are moving forward, but there's a whole hell of a lot of gas in the Haynesville where you don't need FERC approval for a pipe if it's inter interstate uh, or intrastate, excuse me. Um, you know, so why aren't some of those projects moving forward when you see this massive ARB in the LNG markets, right? Where gas is here in the US versus the EU. I'm not sure why that is, but, you know, from the perspective of these new laws and these new regulations, it certainly hurts getting gas from Appalachia down to the Gulf Coast or gas from, you know, Appalachia up into New England. You know, the other just getting back to the laws, Jones Act, right? Like, why can't we just take a ship from the Gulf Coast to New England and, you know, instead of buying LNG from uh, foreign countries for New England where they import it? That's because of the Jones Act laws, where it has to be a you know U.S. built, U.S. domiciled ship to operate in only U.S. waters, and there's no LNG ships that meet that criteria, right? So, and it's you know what's interesting is talking about these two topics and just thinking about history. I mean, we won World War One and World War Two, quite frankly, because of the East Texas oil field. I mean, we had the ability to mobilize an army that the Germans didn't have because they didn't have our resources, but it is energy policy is geopolitical strategy, whatever we want to call it. It's amazing how intertied they are. Cause when you were sitting there talking about let's import more LNG, wouldn't it be great if we could import enough to Europe that they could tell Putin to suck it, you know, for sure. Exactly. I, I will say lastly, I'll just say, I do have this, you know, slight queasy feeling in my stomach that if you know if we're ex exporting a lot of lng now if we were to double and triple that and we were to fast forward 10 or 15 years do we regret it you know yeah are we at the point where you know all of our tier one all of our tier two acreages and then we become reliant on foreign gas at some point again you know i i don't think that's 20 30 years down the road right but i think um I do have con some concerns that we kind of go full, you know, full bore. Let's export as much as we can. We start talking about basin centered gas in the Rockies again. Yeah. <laughs> We've hit there. All right. Issue three.
Sorry, Jeff, I didn't share with you uh, that your face gets put on videos when you come in as the uh, as the goes. Yeah, you looked good on Schwarzenegger, though. I like that. I don't know, man. I got a face for radio. <laughs> face for podcasting. All right, we've seen earning seasons from the public EMPs come out, and I can't even believe I'm going to say this, but it feels like capital discipline is still in check. Uh, it seems like EMP companies are minding their P's and Q's, listening to their investors. What do you think, Jeff? I mean, it's still early in the reporting season, but what we've seen, you know, most ENPs that I've kind of tracked are uh, walking the walk or talking the talk, so to speak, as it relates to capital discipline. Um, you know, you have a Continental who bucked that trend. I don't know that the market really, you know, puked up on their stock, but they, I believe, expanded CapEx 30, 40%, uh, you know, to grow production. But then, I think they threw out 15% production growth type numbers. Right. Harold going to Harold. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, maybe I guess he just wrote some big checks to his kids. So he just wants to make sure the company is going to continue to grow and thrive. Um, Harold, if you're listening, I'll take one of those checks too. <laughs> I think he just doled out $2 billion each to his kids. Chuck Ham. Yeah. That has a nice exactly. ring to it. I Chuck, like that. Chucky Ham. Yeah. Um, you know, but you, you know, you have the marathons of the world. The, you know, I think, I don't think Apache's reported, but you know, they they used a bunch of cash to buy, I think by five percent of the stock or five to seven percent of the stock and in, in the fourth quarter, Marathon bought five percent and in the fourth quarter announced another, you know, kind of ten percent buyback plan. So you have these really kind of creeping, you know, kind of buyouts of these companies in the public markets today rather than invest to drill. I, I have a hard time believing myself that uh, the returns on drilling here at 90 bucks, 90 plus oil aren't better than, you know, the return on buying your stock back. But, you know, if they can continue to play this game, keep, I don't want to even call it a game, use this strategy, keep prices high, um, you know, show a little bit of growth and, and you know, throw off a bunch of free cash flow. Uh, I think it works from an investment perspective. The concerns I have are would be from a company's perspective, have they drawn down a bunch of ducks uh, to kind of, you know, have this fantasy free cash flow, so to speak, where in a year or 18 months, you know, it's going to dive down as, as they have to start drilling again. Um, you know, do they start to, you know, go down the path of acquisitions and other kind of avenues with at at this moment, you know, capital is super cheap for ENPs. You know, I think if you look at high yield bond spreads, high yield kind of uh, bond yields, you know, e, uh, ENPs and energy companies can finance themselves cheaper than the broader market right now. So I'll throw this at you because I don't think you and I have ever talked about this. Um, I kind of the week that COVID exploded. So March, first week of March, 2020, I was actually in New York city. My kiddo was doing model UN. So I went around to all the buy side public guys and just said, Hey, I do private equity. You do public. Let's compare notes. And the theme I heard over and over again was less about, we don't want people drilling. It was we don't know how to judge whether they're being successful or not. They tell us they're drilling a 40% rate of return well. We get one reserve report at the end of the year. 
we see quarterly production growth, but ultimately, how do you tie that back to the actual rate of return, particularly when it's a 40-year tail of production? How do we do it? And so I think part of the, you know, people have been complaining, oh, free cash flow and the like. Part of that in terms of the return of capital, I think, is just, hey, I don't trust you guys to actually spend the capital in a prudent way. Um, so I think I'll say this is a statement and you can agree or attack it or, or whatever. I actually think part of the solution to this problem on capital spend is we've got to have a better mechanism to give investors the ability to give us a scorecard in terms of how they're doing. And so I don't know what exactly that is. I don't know if it's four reserve reports a year. I don't know if it's releasing individual production data of big pads you drill or what's the like, but that's part of it. I think you could have more free reign to spend more money, which at $95 oil and the fact that you're going to get, you know, half your production from a well in three years, maybe even if it's a great Permian location, you could get your money back in 12 months. I think part of that solution has to be you got to do a better job of giving information to investors so they can rate you. Yeah, I think, you know, going back to over a year ago on when I was on your podcast, I, I actually think I brought up if you were an oil and gas company and you were willing to give the market your well by well data and say some public database that people could access and maybe there's some delay, but it's better than what you get from a state perspective, kind of more real time. I think those companies would trade at a premium because you just give more transparency, more visibility into like, we are drilling good wells and these things are paying off quickly at this price. Uh, let's show show you the data so you can believe that. Um, but but that's a great point, you know, with effectively 40 year assets, how, how can I gauge you? How can I judge you over time? And it feels like you know, free cash flow is the metric that investors came up with, right? So they're going to push for free cash flow. Um, and it's probably just one of these, you know, boy who cried wolf things where, you know, it may be, you know, 12 months, 24 months, 36 months of we want to see that you can actually do it and live within cash flow before we allow you to, you know, kind of expand again without punishing you. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, but you look at a Matador, right? Like Matador continues to grow and that stock certainly, I think if you look at that the last year, it's one of the better performing stocks out there, right? So um, the market really hasn't seemed to punish companies that have grown, but E&P management teams certainly seem to have uh, taken the message of capital discipline to heart for now. Well said, well said. I hate doing this because we're doing this way too often on uh, the BDE show, but uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to our friend at friends at Heart Energy, Leslie Haynes, the longtime editor of the Oil and Gas Investor, passed away last week uh, after a bout with cancer. And Jeff, I don't know if you ever met Leslie, but uh, she was probably five feet tall if she was wearing platinum shoes, uh, platform shoes, but just a fireball. I mean, a firecracker. Her nickname was the queen of the oil patch. And um, my favorite Leslie story is the Doug conference in the Permian Basin. I was asked to come speak. 
and they asked me to come speak on why the Permian Basin was a great place to invest for oil and gas, which is the single dumbest thing to talk on. So I got up there and I said, the reason it's great is because there's a shitload of oil and gas here. Uh -huh. And then I proceeded to go off the deep end and uh, give a speech about green eggs and ham and how I learned more from that book than I did business school. I think half the audience gave me a standing ovation. The other half booed me and thought it was just a mess. The joke around here is I went digital wildcatters before there was there a digital go. wildcatters. So we were at the cocktail reception afterwards. I was sitting there talking with Leslie and somebody came up and was like, God, Chuck, that was such a great speech. Leslie, what'd you think of it? And she looked him in the eyes and said, I thought it stunk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I, just, I she loved was a straight shooter. She was a straight shooter and just, just a really great person. And uh, we're very sad that Leslie has left us. So thoughts and prayers with our, uh, our friends at heart. All right, Jeff, this is our favorite part of the, uh, part of the, uh, the show. Colin and I always like to end with the finger of the week. So here we go. All right, Jeff, this week's Finger of the Week, the San Antonio Express News. The San Antonio Express News endorsed Sarah Stodgener for railroad commissioner. We're having this wild railroad commissioner race in the state of Texas. Um, I know people are saying, I didn't know y'all had Amtrak in uh, Texas, and why does that matter? Actually, the railroad commission is the regulatory body in charge of the oil and gas business, and so it's a really important race. Sarah is, say what you want about her. She is a colorful character, but she's smart. She's thoughtful. And I think she actually was well-deserving of their um, endorsement. She made a bit of a risque video, what she called the hump jack video, where she appeared to be nude riding a pump jack to draw attention to the race. And the San Antonio New, uh, Express News withdrew their endorsement. And so I think of all the things we do in political discourse these days and all of the politicians and their faults, I'm not really sure a little bit of a risque video is that bad. And so finger of the week. What do you think? I agree. I mean, uh, I, I I respect the hustle, serious hustle to... Uh, <laughs> get the views and get her word out there or get her message out there. Um, yeah. I mean, you look at politicians and kind of the, uh, the fiascos they get themselves involved in. And you certainly, you know, just speaking as a man that's been around the oil and gas industry around other men that I've seen get kind of nine lives, so to speak of uh, burning companies down, or you think of the Roger Parkers or John Schillers of the industry that actually have been charged with crimes and, you know, a lot of folks are given chance after chance after chance in the industry. So for a woman to put herself out there and, you know, a fairly benign commercial and, you know, from my perspective to to lose that endorsement, they deserve the finger of the week. <laughs> so actually this week, my podcast is with Sarah Stodgner and uh, we do two things. One, it's kind of funny. We do five questions, kind of like what I did when you came on. 
where you'll learn something about the railroad commission and a couple of them are silly, silly questions. But we, what I also did is I shot some video with her when I was working on the Antina ranch podcast back in December and her telling of how she figured out that there was actually a large blowout going on. She drove by every well site. She saw pressure on the backside. She really pieced that together. And I think we've, we've changed narrative wise from Antina ranch, Sarah and Ashley being crazy to know they were, they were right all along is a tribute to her. And, and that's actually the job interview. We ought to put somebody through for railroad commissioner. And so I thought the the chatting by the fireside, even though it's not about the railroad commissioner, was interesting. And so that's what we're we're dropping this week. Awesome. Jeff, you were cool to come on and do this. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Digital Wildcatters, we'll see you next week.